Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Let's talk about referral programs. They were all the rage when growth hacking was getting popular, but have you ever thought about creating a referral program for your newsletter? There's a newsletter called Influence Weekly, and after they implemented a referral program, it started to grow 50% faster. In some weeks, more than 80% of new subscribers came from the referral program. And it's all thanks to Sparkloop, the referral tool specifically built for newsletters. It takes five minutes to set up and has a generous 30-day trial. Check them out at sparkloop.app EIM. You can find the link in the show notes and tell them Corey sent you. On the show today is April Dunford. April is the author of one of my all-time favorite marketing books, Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Get It, Buy It, and Love It. I wanted to bring April on because she's the person to go to regarding positioning. Positioning is probably the most essential part of marketing and yet the least understood. April is also a very unconventional thinker. She's not afraid to disagree or tell people they're wrong or offer up her own opinion. And she's also consulted with hundreds of companies, spoken at conferences around the world, and written up some amazing material on all things positioning. You'll hear about how she doesn't think that product market fit is a useful concept, the pros and cons of creating a category, the tried and true method for working out your own positioning, and many more unique insights, examples, and case studies that she hasn't shared elsewhere. All right, April, to start out, I would love to know, did you ever think that you'd be teaching positioning for a living and traveling the world and talking about positioning all day long? <laughs> no, like when I was a kid, no. <laughs> like when I was in grade two, when people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I did not say positioning lady. <laughs> That's the thing. So no, I didn't actually, but, but here we are. You know what? My career has been a bit like that. Like I, yeah, I started, I, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't end up doing that either. And then I was in engineering school. I thought I'd do engineering and I ended up in marketing. So I don't know. I, I, I think if life has taught me anything, it's like, I don't actually know what I'm doing. It just kind of works out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'd be a little bit scary if you were a small child and you said that you wanted to be a positioning expert. That would just be weird. Teach. Yeah. That'd be very <laughs> weird. So, um, <laughs> Hindsight's 2020, right? I'm glad you are where you are today. You're one of the sort of um, experts in the field of positioning. It's been very enlightening for me. Your book, obviously awesome, uh, is one of my favorites and kind of most recommended around there because there's been sort of this gap uh, in, in the market for something like this. Um, and maybe that to give a little bit, a bit of context into how you've gotten here, like how did you find yourself in marketing and that, that got the wheels spinning towards this whole positioning theme? Yeah. So, you know, I can kind of trace it back to the first job I got out of school. So, you know, I, I mentioned I studied engineering. So I did systems design engineering, University of Waterloo. And um, when I finished, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And, and, and at that point, software was really hot. So everybody was going to work at a software company and mainly big companies, though, because startups were not hot at that point. And we didn't even call them startups back then. They were just small companies. And so everybody wanted to work for a big company. Um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I ended up getting a job at a startup. 
And in the marketing department, technically I was a product marketer. And so, and how I got that job was my friend worked at the company and she had been there a couple of years and she, and the job was, uh, there was a handful of requirements. One, it was a database product I was working on. So you need to know a little bit about databases and specifically you needed to know how to write an SQL query, <laughs> which yeah. I knew. And then two, you had to be unafraid of public speaking because part of the job was going to be going to trade shows and doing demos for customers and things like that. And I had never been had a fear of public speaking. So I ended up getting the job really? and uh, and that product that I was assigned to it turned out it was a bit of a dog. Like we, uh, it had been launched a couple months before I got there, but then after I got there, it, it became clear it wasn't selling enough to justify keeping it. And so we almost killed it. And instead what we did was we ended up repositioning it into a totally different market for a totally different use case. And after that repositioning, the thing took off and became super, super successful and we ended up getting acquired by a big database company. And so I went to the big database company as part of the acquisition. Um, my boss quit and they put me in charge of marketing. So here I am, you know, two years out of marketing school and I'm, I'm running this big marketing team and I don't know anything about marketing, but, you know, but up until that point, the one thing that I did learn was this positioning thing is kind of important. <laughs> you should pay attention to that because you might have a thing that looks bad that is actually a winner, but you're just not positioning it correctly. So that sort of started my fascination with the study of positioning and then the other thing was that I was now in charge of this giant budget and a big team uh, in the Valley at this big database company. And I thought, you know what, I better learn something about this stuff. And I ended up taking a bunch of marketing classes and reading a bunch of books and stuff. And it became clear to me that one, positioning was super, super important. It is kind of a fundamental underpinning to almost everything we do in marketing, one, but two, no one knows how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so I kind of made that my mission to figure out how could we do this in a repeatable way. And that's sort of where I got started. And then, you know, now here I am now teaching other people how to do that. Yeah. You, I want to get back to positioning, but you said something crazy sort of fly by and you flew by really quickly was that you never had a fear of public speaking. Is that really the case? Like, I think most That's people really would say the that there's their their number one fear. I believe in you know, some sort of study. You know, it's like people have uh, fear of <laughs> fear of death, but they fear public speaking above all. But apparently not for you. <laughs> I don't think that's true for everybody. But no, yeah, no, I never had a fear of public speaking. And, you know, I had done a bit of it in high school, too. Like there was a public speaking contest every year and I won it a couple of times. Like I just never had a fear of standing on stage and just shooting my mouth off. <laughs> so yeah, that was never a fear. And not only that, you know, when, when I landed in engineering, so I, I took it, I took this engineering course in university and it was kind of, you know, kind of fancy engineering at the, at the, at the really good, one of the really good technical schools in Canada. So it was really hard to get in. So you're in there with all these people and everybody's really, really smart. Um, and, you know, and maybe it's just the way, maybe I'm naturally suited to positioning because I, you know, one of the things I got thinking about was I'm going to have to compete with these people for jobs mm. <laughs> and everyone's really smart and they're all really good. And a lot of the people there had been programming since they were babies, you know, and I didn't start programming until I was in grade 11. So I was way behind. And, uh, and 
So, but, but there was a handful of things that I was really good at that these, that these people were lousy at. Public speaking was one of them. I was a decent writer. I do not call myself a good writer by marketing standards, but you know, if my competition is a bunch of engineers from the University of Waterloo, I'm a pretty good writer. Um, so I was good at writing, good at public speaking. So y- you learn that because you're doing group projects and things. And then, you know, and then the bit, you have to go and present this project at some point and everyone's like, Oh, who's going to present it? And I'm like, me, <laughs> we're going to ace yeah. this. It's going to be fine. <laughs> so yeah, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for that, nobody would want me in their group. <laughs> because it'd be like, you know what? You're not such a great programmer. I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to do the presentation and y'all aren't going to have to do it. Everybody's like, okay, okay. You can be with our gang. Yeah. Yep. So that's your position, right? Within the market of the class was the that's public right. speaker. That's one right. It's like, you know, I'm not, I, I can't beat you guys at a lot of things, but there's one thing I got. Yeah. <laughs> that's enough. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of positioning, <clears throat> I think it's important to sort of uh, establish a baseline, right? Of like, what what is positioning? What isn't positioning? I know you, you must answer this a thousand times a day, but could you walk me through? Yeah, every, every quickly, podcast like... pretty much. But yeah, but uh, right. but I'll, yeah, but I'll, I'll I'll do it again. It, it's important because it's misunderstood. Like people don't really understand what positioning is. If we don't understand what it is, how can we get at how to do it? And and it's not just like some people think. Oh well, you know, I'm a I'm a technical founder, and I don't know this because I'm not in marketing. It, marketers don't know either. Like. Um, if we had a room full of VPs of marketing and I were to say define positioning, I'd probably get a dozen different definitions. So um, positioning often gets confused with messaging. That's that's probably the closest one is people will say, oh, positioning is the same thing as messaging. And it's not. You kind of have to have your positioning first and it feeds into the messaging. People will talk about it's the same thing as a tagline or, you know, or brand positioning is my personal pet peeve because I think there's branding and there's positioning, they're two very separate things, but I cannot figure out my branding until I understand my positioning first. So mm-hmm. in my definition of positioning, positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at providing some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. It's a mouthful. And the reason it's a mouthful is because Positioning is defining a whole bunch of things. It's basically defining, here's here's who I actually compete with. Here's how I'm different. This is the value that I uniquely can provide to customers. Oh, by the way, these are the customers that I'm trying to provide it to that are the good fit for what I do. And then lastly, you know, this is the market I intend to win. We can't do anything else in marketing until we understand those things deeply. I can't write messaging until I know who's the messaging for and what's the messaging going to be about and who am I trying to beat here. I can't do branding until I understand who are my ideal customers and who's this branding for and what is it we're exactly trying to communicate with the branding. So positioning is this kind of fundamental underpinning of almost everything we're doing in marketing and sales. We kind of have to have this stuff first because positioning is an input to everything else we're trying to do. Hmm. And so what, what is the, uh, the process that you walk someone through? You, you mentioned sort of like the, it's almost like a fill in the blank statement, but not quite right. But there's a couple of different factors and ingredients that you need to form your positioning. Um, yeah. what is the process you, you teach that you walk people through just so we can, again, define those components, and then we can kind of jump into each one a little bit. Right. So, um, 
<clears throat> so in my definition of positioning, we have, we can break it apart into five component pieces. So the component pieces are, first of all, competitive alternatives. So if you didn't exist, what would people do? Um, secondly is um, unique capabilities. So what have you got that the competitors don't have feature function capability wise? Next, uh, there's value. So you have capabilities, but so what for customers? So what's the value that those capabilities enable for customers? Um, the next one is customer segmentation, which is who are the who are the actual customers that are a really, really good fit for what we do? And so this is my target customer base. And then the last thing is market category, which is um, probably the hardest conceptually to understand, but it's a bit like saying, what am I? Am I email or chat? Am I CRM or team collaboration? So it's the definition of the market that you intend to win. Now, when you look at those five things, or at least this is the way I reason it out, if I can break positioning up into these five pieces, then I can I can approach this like an engineering problem <laughs> and say, look, I'm going to break it apart into pieces, solve for the solve for the pieces independently. The best answer for each one of those, smash it together, and voila, good positioning. That's how I'm going to get it. The trick with this is when you start looking at those pieces, the first thing you discover is each of the pieces has a relationship to the others. They don't actually exist independently. So if I pick anything and they're like, let's pick value, the differentiated value that my product enables for customers is completely dependent on my differentiated features or capabilities. But my differentiated features and capabilities are only differentiated when I compare them to a competitive alternative. So those three things are all really tightly related. Um, if I say, who's my best fit customer? Well, my best fit customer is the customer that cares a lot about the value that I can deliver. So I can't really figure out best fit customers until I understand what my value is, can I? So those two things are related. And then market category, again, is probably the most difficult conceptually, but your best market category is the context you position your product in such that your value is obvious to the people you're trying to communicate it to. So I need to understand value and target customers before I can figure out market category. So where do I start? And so um, I spent a long time puzzling on that question in particular. Um, and, uh, and eventually where I landed was, we actually need to start with competitive alternatives and then everything cascades from there. So in my methodology, the starting point is um, who are you actually competing with? Now, a lot of people get this wrong because there's a difference between a competitor and a competitive alternative. Uh, we often think of competitors as other companies that do the same thing that we do. But from a customer's perspective, if I went into the customer and said, hey, like if we didn't exist, what would you be doing right now? A lot of time the answer is like, uh, I'd be using a spreadsheet or I'd be hiring an intern or I'd be you know, using my accounting package, even though it was never intended to do that. So you need to start there. And then once I really understand who I'm competing against, then I can say, okay, here's my competition. What have I got feature function capability wise that's different from them? And I could probably make a giant list of things that, that, that I've got that the competition doesn't have. And then I take those features and I map it to value. So for each point, each uh, feature, I can say, so what for customers? I got a 25 megapixel camera. Who 
cares? So what, right? Oh, I got the ability to save this and do that and do something with a profile. So what? And so what you have to do is translate that to value and say, you care about the megapixels on the camera because you want to be able to produce print ads and print ads need higher resolution. That's why you care. Um, so I then take that value. I go through all the features. I map it to value and those the value tends to kind of theme out into a handful of value themes, usually no more than three. So that's kind of a way of backing into a value proposition. So I got value, I got the features that support that value. And then next I, I go to customer segmentation. I say, okay, this is the value I can deliver. If I'm selling to businesses, what is the characteristics of a business that makes them really care a lot about that value? So like if what you do is like make it super easy for companies to, um, complete and execute on invoices. Well, if I only do one invoice a day, maybe I don't care so much about that. If I do a thousand invoices a day, maybe I care a lot. So this is how I get to my segmentation. Like, how can I tell, I could probably sell this thing to anybody, but some customers are really good fit for this. How do I tell from the outside that they might be a good target? I need this for marketing and sales to know who they're going after. And then the last bit is market category, which again is a bit like, I got this value, I'm trying to communicate it to these people, um, you know, am I better to describe this thing as email or chat? Am I better to say this is CRM or team collaboration? And so that's how you get to market category. So my methodology is basically that here's where we're going to start. And then here's how we're going to cascade through. And that's how it works. Hmm. Yeah. So I want to zoom in on a few of those points, uh, starting with the competitive alternatives. Yeah. Um, there's sort of like the startup trope or cliche of uh, some people advising, well, you should ignore your, your competitors or you shouldn't pay attention yeah. to what they're doing or who they are, maybe what they, what, yeah. what's your take on that? Like, should you, uh, how do well, you balance that line? Like the first thing is define competitor, right? Because like most of the time, I think startups pay way too much attention to little bitty competitors that they never actually see in a deal. And I think that's stupid. <laughs> so, so, you know, a lot of what I, when I see people saying, you should, don't worry about your competitors. And I'm like, yeah, cause those people aren't even competing with you. <laughs> you don't lose deals to them. You don't see them in deals. They're actually not competitors. They might compete with you for VC dollars. If you're raising money, you might need to know them. If a VC asks you who's your competitor, that's different. But from a customer perspective, you do need to understand I'm a customer, I have this problem, I am solving it today, somehow. And it might be with a spreadsheet or an intern or whatever, or my crappy old accounting system. And you, as the person coming to me and trying to sell me new software, you gotta convince me to stop doing that old thing to start doing your new thing. So you, got, you gotta beat that at a minimum, right? At a minimum, you gotta beat status quo. Generally, you got two kinds of competitors. You got status quo, and then you've got, you know, the customer says, damn it, we can't do invoices manually anymore. We keep making mistakes. It's terrible. We got to go find some software. And then they're going to go and make a shortlist. And then they're going to talk to the vendors on that shortlist. So who makes the shortlist? These are the only competitors you got to worry about, right? And so a lot of times with this startup advice of, you know, don't pay attention to your competitors, I is like, I get where it's coming from. And most of the time I would agree, but I do think that you need to understand your customer's perception of what their choices are 
And you need to understand how to describe why you are a better choice than those things. So one, you need to understand who do I actually compete with? And then two, you need to understand how do I win? Because otherwise you're not going to sell anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Otherwise it's, it's a moot point, right? Otherwise you're not going to um, sell anything. Yeah. Speaking of startups and, and VC, I think one of the things that a lot of startups struggle with on the unique attributes point is, mm -hmm. you know, you're building fast, you're, you're constantly uh, iterating, improving, launching big new features all the time. And so how do you balance uh, positioning yourself for what you are today versus what you're going to be a month, three months, six months, a year from now, and sort of yeah. wanting to position ahead of yourself and look you know, where you're going, not necessarily where you are today. Right. The, the first thing to keep in mind is that positioning isn't a one and done kind of thing. We don't just set the positioning and then forget it. And now we're stuck with that for the next 30 years, whether we like it or not. It's, it doesn't work like that, right? So um, your positioning is going to evolve over time. And particularly with startups that are adding a lot of new functionality, like you're going to position as this. This year, I guarantee you, your positioning next year isn't going to look the same. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think you need to give yourself permission and just sort of chill out a bit about it. Like, you know, just because we're positioning this way now doesn't mean that's what we are forever. We still have a vision and where we want to go and, and that's going to look different. But at the same time, you need to position in a way that is truthful to what a customer is actually going to get. <laughs> because you can't position too much stuff in the future. Otherwise, one of two things will happen. Either the customer gets your product and says, my dude, it doesn't do the thing you said it was going to do, like you're lying, or um, you're expressing it and you're saying, look, this is the vision. We don't have it today, but we're going to have this thing later. And you might get a customer saying, you know what? That's great. Maybe I'll buy it later. Call me next year <laughs> when you got all that good stuff. So in order to sell what's on the truck today, you need to position what's valuable about what's on the truck today. Now, it's okay if you're a couple months out, like especially if your sales cycle is a couple of months, you can start selling something that isn't going to get delivered for a couple of months. I'm totally okay with that. But I can't sell you something that I that I don't know when I'm going to deliver it to you and it's not going to be there by the time we close this deal. Uh, the risk I run is I'm 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 giving customers reason to delay, reason to not make the decision right now, and that's you know, we lose most of our deals to no decision because a customer can't figure out what to do right now. So the last thing we want to do is contribute to that. Hmm. Now, speaking about uh, the value, right, and the proof and sort of how, you know, first you get the alternatives and you figure out what's unique about yourself and then you translate that into something to the customer that makes sense. that says, oh, that's interesting. This can help me or this is right. a better way of doing things. Um, I want to ask you about how you communicate the value and how you communicate the positioning um, and especially reference to, I think probably in some people's minds, there's still a question of, well, what's the difference between positioning and turning that into, or the relationship between storytelling or strategic narrative and essentially mm -hmm. how the value gets communicated? Yeah. So, so let's start with storytelling because I, I think that's, that that's a common misperception of sort of like there's positioning and then there's storytelling. Like, again, positioning is, um, is getting the definition of who's my competitor? How am I different? What's the value I'm delivering? Who is it for? Uh, what market do I intend to win? That's positioning. 
how you communicate positioning is a thousand different ways. I mean, you, you communicate, you can communicate position. Your branding is communicating positioning. Your messaging is communicating positioning. So when we get into something like storytelling, um, it, you might have a thousand stories that you use that help to communicate who you're for and what the value is. So uh, customer stories are one common example. You might have the company origin story that you tell in certain situations. And that's another example. So um, I, I think generally when we're communicating positioning, there's, you know, we have a kit bag of stories that we pull out and use in different situations, depending on what that is. Um, the most common way that positioning gets communicated is in the, the, the message that your sales reps, if you have sales reps, it's the message your sales reps are delivering in sales meetings, and it's the message you're communicating on your homepage. Now, for me, um, the message on the homepage, uh, it can do a lot of things in terms of communicating the positioning. Like when I land on that homepage, is it clear to me who this is for? When I land on that homepage, do I understand the, what the thing is at a minimum, right? So do I understand the market category? And then do I understand the value that this thing can potentially deliver to me? And then there's all sorts of other things you're going to have in there. Like, is there proof points for the value? And I'm looking for social proof around who other, what other customers have done this. Do those customers look like me? So there's a lot of chess happening on a homepage to communicate that positioning. And it's a combination of stories and messaging and a bunch of other things. Um, if, if you were to ask me the best way to test positioning, um, I would say that um, in its purest form, and I do this with the clients that I work with, um, we work through the component pieces of positioning, but then what we do is we take that positioning and we translate it into a pitch. And that pitch, you could think of it as a, as a sales pitch, um, Lately, I've been kind of think of it, thinking of it a bit more as um, kind of a, a point of view pitch. It's like, how do I express my point of view on why we're a better solution for this than any other way you might choose to solve the problem? And so that's very different from storytelling. Like traditional storytelling, if I look at how we build a story, like... Um, if I take a popular storytelling framework like StoryBrand, like that's the one that a lot of people are using right now. StoryBrand, I think, is a really great storytelling framework to figure out like a particular story. So if I'm trying to structure a customer case study, I think StoryBrand is a great way to do that. You know, I've got I've got the hero and the hero meets a guide. Blah, there's all that stuff. <laughs> but the problem is, is if I'm doing a sales pitch, um, you know, or even even if I so let's say I'm going to do this story brand thing and I'm going to write a case study about it, I still need the positioning first, right? Who's the hero? It's the customer. Who's my target customer? How do I how do I figure that out? Story brand doesn't have an answer for that, right? So I, I need to have the positioning first before I can build that story. Second thing is if if the purpose of the story is sales. So let's say I'm sitting across from a customer and what I'm trying to do is convince the customer why they should go with my stuff. It doesn't follow that kind of hero's journey arc. That's not how we build sales pitches, right? What the customer is trying to do chess on, the customer is trying to figure out, look, I'm solving this problem now. I got lots of different ways I can solve that problem. And I'm trying to figure out, should you be on my short list 
And if so, should I pick you? So how do I choose between all the different options? Because we're all in crowded markets. I got all these different options. Why you versus anybody else? And if I pick you, what's going to be the impact of my business? So that's a very different story arc than, you know, the hero finds a guide. And <laughs> whatever. It's, it's just that's not how we construct sales pitches. So mm-hmm. now when I look at the way most startup people sell, um, they're kind of not doing that. Like what they like, I find, I find there's three kind of sales pitches I encounter when I look at the way startup people sell. The first one is like the features, features, features pitch, right? They get the, get the customer on the phone and they're like, Hey, let me show you a demo. They don't give them any setup. No, nothing. They're just like, Hey, let me show you a demo. And here's a feature. Here's a feature. Here's another one. Oh, let me show you this feature. Let me show you that feature. Now I'm the customer. I'm sitting on the other side of that. And I'm like, Dude, I'm trying to buy CRM. I've never bought a CRM before. I have no idea what my purchase criteria are for CRM. I don't I don't know how to differentiate between you and any other CRM. You just blew my hair back with a bunch of features, but I don't even I don't know what the value of those features are. I don't know if I in particular need them. I don't know if any of the other CRMs have features like that. What the hell is all this shit? <laughs> so so the features, features, features pitch, you know, leaves all the work to the customer to figure out why are these features important and are they differentiated? So that pitch, I don't think does a great job of kind of expressing your point of view in the market. Does it do that? The second kind of one you get are these ones where people are trying to use this storytelling framework. And so they'll do things like the founder origin story is a popular version of that, or they'll try to work what they're doing into this, you know, again, traditional story framework, which doesn't always work. So I like some founders have really good origin stories, right? So when they're pitching, they'll be like, hey, customer, I was just like you. I was working in the sandwich shop. And you know what drove me crazy? The toaster was a piece of junk. And I decided I could make a better toaster. And, you know, and I was just like you, toaster operator. And now I got this better toaster and you should buy mine because I feel your pain. And so what's cool about that story is, it does this great job of kind of establishing empathy and a connection with the customer and this idea, and it's rooted in pain, right? So there's this idea of that. What it doesn't do again is it doesn't, you know, if I talk to three founders and they all got a great toaster origin story, how's mine different? Right. And I got choices. Like I, I got, I got a lot of toasters I could buy and they all look good and they all kind of look like yours. And that's a great story you told me, but the story doesn't include anyone else. It's a story about you. And what I'm trying to figure out is you versus everyone else. And that's hard. So, so that's not doing the job. And then the last one is kind of this, I see this one a lot right now. It's kind of popular with um, people that are, people that are attempting to do category creation or they're attempting to say, you know what? We have no competition. We are creating this new thing. And, and that's what we are. We're, and so you come in and you're like, the world is changing world's changing, man. There's there's changes in the world and there's going to be fire and apocalypse and everything else. And at the end of the world, there are no toasters. There are only bread browning devices. These are different. We're a bread, we're a bread improvement device. That's what we are. We're not a toaster. We're a bread improvement device. We have no competition and you need to buy my bread improvement. (laughs) And so the, the problem with this pitch, um, and, and I'm exaggerating, but a lot of these pitches end up sounding a bit like this. 
the pitches, again, they work very well for investors. Like, I think this is actually a not bad way to structure an investor pitch because first of all, you're trying to, you're trying to position the vision. You're trying to pitch where you're going to be way in the future. You're trying to show how you're going to, you're going to, there are no competitors because you're going to completely, you know, redefine the whole market. And there's going to be this massive opportunity. You're going to be the only, you're the, you're going to be the only one standing at the end of it. And I think investors maybe like that pitch. I've seen a lot of investor pitches that follow that model works pretty good. The problem with customers though, is customers aren't stupid, right? They've done their research before they come to you mm. and they know you're not the only toaster and they know you're a toaster. <laughs> like, and so you can say, you know, I'm a bread improvement device and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever, you're a toaster. And like, why, why the bullshit? <laughs> like, why are you, like, why are you trying to trick me into thinking you're something else? And so you run the risk. Like, so one, you kind of break this empathetic connection with your customer because right off the bat, it sounds like bullshit. Two, you're not acknowledging their what they're trying to get done here. What they're trying to get done here is figure out how to make choices. And you're saying there are no choices. There's just me. Hmm. And I think that's unrealistic. And, and I think, you know, and, and maybe it works in certain situations with certain kind of markets, with certain kind of products. Most of these pitches do, right? Sometimes a feature, feature, feature pitch works if your customer is quite technical and very well versed in the solutions and whatever. Sometimes that pitch will work. In the same way that I think this big vision pitch thing, sometimes it works, but I don't think it works in general because I think in general, it comes off sounding like bullshit. It doesn't actually, it's not actually giving customers what they need, which is a way to think about the market. And how do I make choices? When should I pick you? Why should I pick you? I got lots of choices. So tell me how to think about this whole market. Hmm. So in my mind, an alternative to that is to essentially do this, what I would call a point of view pitch. And your point of view pitch comes in and says, look, you got a problem, man. And, and your problem is getting the toast cooked. Like you, you want brown bread. That's what you want. And there's lots of ways to make the bread brown. You could, you could start a fire in the backyard and stick it over there. There's one way to do it. You could buy a toaster and there's lots of toasters on the market and the toasters look like this. Or you could do it this totally, you know, and but the problem with, and then I outline what the problems are with all these other solutions. And you say, you know, the problem with the toaster is I can only put one slice at a time. And the problem with the fire in the backyard, man, I don't even have a backyard. Like, how am I going to do that? And, and at the end of it, like, you know what, maybe in a perfect world, if what we really wanted was to brown toast and brown a whole bunch of toast, maybe what I need is a device that would let me do a whole bunch of toast all at once. Right. Now, if you say and that's my point of view on the market. Now, if you're, you know, because my differentiator is I would do a whole bunch of toast all at once. That's my real differentiator. So if you're if you're interested in that, and I'm and I'm, you know, my point of view is all about that's important. If that's important for you, and then, well, then now I got something to sell you. And I'm like, you know what you need? Toaster oven, man. Let me show it to you. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Here's toaster yeah. oven. It's amazing. Put that eight slices in there all at once. Toast it all up. It's way better toaster. Why would you need a toaster? Toasters are stupid. So you know. So that's how you do it. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a framework to think about the whole market, not just my thing. I'm admitting, and I'm giving you what you want. You're sitting there going, "When would I want the backyard?" Well, because you don't have electricity. If you don't have electricity, build a fire in the backyard. Okay, that's good. Well, when do I want the toaster? I'm, I'm just doing normal toast things. I only have two slices. They don't get too fat. They go in the thing. If that's all you're doing, buy a toaster. 
right? But if you need this other stuff, that's when you pick me, hmm. right? So it's understanding how am I different than all the other choices? Who cares about that? And then just explaining that. And then the rest of the pitch looks, looks normal, but I'm setting you up with my point of view. My point of view says this. So I can give you loads of examples of these. So, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example that I've been, I've been given a lot lately because I love them. Um, love and, and my friends, my friends in Toronto, um, they're called level jump software. And so what they do is sales enablement software. This is terrible market. There's thousands and there's thousands. Like if you pull out the G2 crowd matrix thing for sales enablement, there's like a hundred companies in there. So they're a little we just starting out. Why would you pick their sales enablement thing? Well, first let's do the positioning, right? First we got to have positioning. So who do they compete with? Well, they compete with putting some stuff on Google drive. That's where everyone starts for sales enablement, or there's two categories of competitors and they both call themselves sales enablement, but they're different. So some are basically content management systems. So they're just a place to put all your sales enablement content, and do version control on it. The other ones are training systems. They're like LMSs. And so it's more of a way to deliver training courses. Now, which level jump, what are they different? Well, they're kind of like a CMS and kind of like an LMS, except they're built on Salesforce. So they're, and they're the only one built on Salesforce. And so their big thing is data. They're, they can take your training data and analyze it with your sales data. That's the feature. Right? What's the value of that feature? The value of that feature is I can tell you whether or not your sales enablement program works. And when I say works, meaning it's improving time to first deal, it's improving time to quota. It's all the things. It's the reason why you do sales enablement in the first place. You're trying to speed that up. Mm. Mm. So that's their value. Okay. So now how do I pitch that? So I could pitch it and say, fire and brimstone man there you know the, the world is changing and and all the old sales enablement platforms they're gone and there's no one but me and i'm a i'm gonna make up some new word for it i'm a whatever whatever instead what they do is this is they go in i'm sitting across from the head of sales enablement a company that's hiring a lot of at a lot of um new sales reps because that's my segmentation so i'm sitting there and i'm like hey you know i know sales enablement super important right? Because every day that your reps aren't making quota costs you money. In fact, I could show you how much money, throw up a couple of slides. It's a lot of money, right? Every day they don't make quota, it's bad. Hmm. And we know a lot about this because we're in this space and here's how people are solving this right now. One, they're putting some shit on Google Drive. That works okay. If you're really small, you only got one or two reps, that's probably all right. But then you get this problem with version control. Are they using the right version of stuff and who did what? You don't know, right? So then they upgrade and they'll go to a CMS. That's a little better. I got version control, but I don't know who's using what stuff. And I want to actually do courses and train people on stuff. So then what do they do? They pick an LMS and that's great. I know who did what, but you know what? None of these things do. None of them tell me whether or not it's working. None of them. Mm. So in a perfect world, if I really want to do sales enablement, wouldn't I want sales enablement that I can measure using sales metrics, not training metrics, sales metrics, right? Hmm. Now listen to that. Yeah. I didn't even pitch level jump. I didn't pitch one thing about level jump. I just pitched you level jumps point of view on the market. Right. Now, if you're sitting across and you say, yeah, yeah, 
You're right. Then I say, great. I'm level jump. Here's what I do. We're, uh, we're, you know, we're sales enablement software that, that can measure this stuff. Here's how we do it. Here's all the features. Here's the value we deliver. How much you want, right? Like the sales pitch is almost irrelevant at that point. It's like rolling down a hill. But the first thing I got to give you is a way to think about the market, because otherwise you're going to say, oh, you know, we do measurement, right? And they're going to say, well, my LMS does measurement too. And you're going to say, yeah, but our measurement's different. Well, why is it different? I don't know. Why do I really, you know, instead, I, you know, instead of doing this feature comparison thing, I'm getting right at, here's what you're trying to do. Here's your challenge. Here's all the different ways you can solve it. But none of those things are actually getting you where you need to go. And so if you're made trying to make a decision about solutions in this market, here's how you decide. And that's the point of view. That's, that's the, the point of view. Yes, yeah, it's not even a sales pitch yet, right? Like it's so a good sales pitch, in my opinion, has this point of view set up, and then you have the follow through where you say, "Okay, good. Now that we're all aligned and we see the world the same way, now let me pitch you my stuff. Here's my stuff. Here's the value. Here are the features that support the value. Let me show you the demo. You know." I'm doing all that stuff. But at first I got to get you aligned so that you're like, so that you know why any of that matters. Hmm. Yeah. Anyways, just my big rant. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I love it. <laughs> and I want to, I want to keep digging into it. And if, if you allow me, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because yeah, yeah. I think one of the things, you know, we, we sort of touched on category creation a little bit. And even mm -hmm. through that example, we were using words like, sales enablement versus uh, LMS versus, right. um, you know, the WETSEs and, and right. All, all these sort of categories that people are, are talking about. Yeah. Um, so one, I'm wondering, you know, can you create a category or is a category created for you, you know, with the, the words that people use to describe it? And I'll give you yeah. an example. I don't, I don't, I'm not picking on them because I think they have a fantastic product and marketing, but there's a tool I've been really interested in lately called Gong. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but oh, it's yeah, essentially, sure. okay, right. It's a tool that allows you to record conversations or video, and then you get the transcripts and it right. kind of allows and they've, you to- they've got some new word that they use to describe their category. I forget what it is though. What is it? Revenue intelligence, I believe. Revenue intelligence. Yeah, that's it. Revenue intelligence. Right. Revenue we'll intelligence, it or it might even be, I believe, uh, I'm, I think I'm confusing it now with Drift, who is now uh, revenue acceleration. Their revenue acceleration. Story. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. Um, but I wouldn't know what to call Gong um, besides call revenue intelligence, call recording, call recording software. software. Yeah. But it, That's does, what that pigeonhole them, but that, does that pigeonhole <laughs> them into something maybe that they're... Uh, uh, doesn't right. fully encapsulate all that they right have because they're to trying offer. to lean into the analytics functionality that they have because they have all these competitors that can also do call recording so their differentiated um, functionality is around is around analytics and the value of that is intelligence right so right. so they've really leaned into that so what I do think is interesting is and this is just my point of view and a lot of people will argue with me on this but um, I think that, so there's two things. One is um, it's absolutely possible to create a category. It is, it's hmm. rare and it's difficult. Hmm. So, um, and particularly if you're trying to do it straight out of the gate, like you're a brand new company, you know, you've got half a million revenue and you're trying to invent a new term and then make that term mean something. 
which is essentially what you're doing. So you're saying, you know, we're revenue intelligence. So now I've got to invest in making revenue intelligence mean something so that I remember it and you remember it and then everybody starts using it and it becomes a thing. So it's easier to do if you have a lot of money. If you've raised a lot of venture capital, you might have a shot at doing that. Um, and so I do think it's possible. I also think it's extremely rare and it is extremely rare that companies successfully do it and then live to dominate the category that they created. Silicon Valley, mm. if it teaches us one thing, it teaches us that category creators most frequently lose the category that they created, right? So that's why we're not using Ask Jeeves or MySpace or creative MP3 players or many of these other category creators that did a great job of creating the category then failed to actually capitalize on that category creation work once it was created in the minds of customers. Um, so if you look, I thought I was doing a, doing a dive through this data, um, but if you look at um, tech companies that have IPO'd in the last five years, um, how many of those companies are positioning themselves as new categories, it's less than 10%. Hmm. So, and if you look at the ones that are positioning themselves as new categories, at what point did they start doing it? Most of them very, very recently around the time of IPO. So we're 100 million revenue, right? So a lot right. of the companies that we talk about as category creators that have done it successfully, Gainsight is one that everybody talks about. There were 200 million revenue when they created that category. And in my opinion, I don't think it was as much category creation as stretching the boundaries of a category they were already do dominating. And so they kind of redefine which you can do when you're the leader in a space. You can then stretch the boundaries and say, you know, when we say this, it actually means this, you know, and we're going to give it a new term. And again, we've got the money to invest in it and make it so. So I do think the categorization category creation is possible. I do think it's a thing. I think it's rare. I think it's hard to do if you don't have um, a lot of outside investment and patient investors at that because it takes time and it's hard to do. Now, here's the other thing. Um, I was involved in category creation effort, a successful category creation effort uh, when I was at IBM. And, um, and the interesting thing about that is if I looked at how we did it, it was very much based on a prediction that the category would emerge. Hmm. So we didn't from scratch say, we're making up a category to say what we're doing because we don't like the existing one because we're getting all sorts of competition over there. So we're just gonna call it something else and it's gonna be or whatever. Um, we looked at, uh, we spent six months trolling through a whole bunch of data and made a prediction that there were four market spaces that were essentially gonna come together into a thing. And then we spent an extraordinary amount of money um, with industry influencers and our own customer base and on PR and a bunch of other things and essentially convinced the market that one, this category was about to emerge and two, we were gonna dominate it. Hmm. And so we did that with the big budget and the rewards for that were amazing. Like we caught all our competitors, super flat footed, all the people in the individual components were sort of hit broadside, you know, Gardner blew up four magic quadrants and turned it into one. And we were the only people up in the leaders quadrant. Like it was a fun thing to do. Um, 
but I don't know how we would have done it without being able to make a case that the category was emerging and deserved to emerge and it was going to be a thing. Now, a lot of what I see in some of these early stage startups doing, I don't think it's as much category creation as it is um, they're, they're putting a name to the value that they deliver and they're making that name seem something. But when you ask them what they are, they're still call reporting and analytics, right? But the value they deliver is revenue intelligence. It's value. It's not a category. <laughs> right, right. So like the same way, like if I, if I look at HubSpot, um, they're marketing automation, just like Marketo, just like Eloqua, they're marketing automation. Even the HubSpot guys would not argue with you on that, right? They're not an inbound marketing platform. Now everybody knows what they are. But so why is so what's inbound marketing then? Is that their category? No, inbound marketing is why they're different because they have a fundamentally different point of view on how marketing automation should happen. Uh, and the other guys are all like, you need to be doing outbound and we're all about outbound and sales and email and whatever and outbound, outbound, outbound. And the HubSpot guys are like, you know what? You're doing it wrong. We have a fundamentally different point of view. And our point of view is that this stuff should come inbound and here's what we learned, and here's why it's different and this is what it's like. And it, we're all doing the same thing. But, but my point of view is that. Um, even if I look at other examples, like Drift is an example that people talk about um, that, that used to talk about uh, conversational marketing. But if you looked on their website and everywhere else, even they described their own product as a bot. It was a bot. The market category doesn't do their own salespeople were out there saying we're a bot. But what conversational marketing was, was a galvanizing view of like, why does, you know, we're bots for marketing is what we are. Oh, well, why do marketers care about bots? Oh, well, they care because they want to do this conversational marketing. Oh, what's that? Oh, it's a human-centric way, blah, 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 whatever. Now they're trying to stretch that out to sales and conversational marketing is outlived its, its relevance for them now. Because now I'm trying to, now, now the question is, why should marketing and sales need bots? But it's mm. to accelerate revenue. It's all about speed. That's, that's, their, that's their thing. That's what, that's their, and what are they competing with? They're competing with forms. So why not just use a form? Because a bot's faster. Cause you're going to get to leads faster because you're going to get to revenue faster. It's revenue acceleration. That's what it's all about. So in my opinion, you know, they can say they're a revenue acceleration platform, but that's not really their marketing category. It's not their market category. Doesn't even matters, but you know, everybody still knows what they are. And if you say, what are they? They're a bot. Nobody else uses revenue acceleration as a term except them. Right. But the reason you care about it, the reason you want it, the value they deliver, is very nicely summarized in this conceptual model of revenue acceleration. What is that? Why does everybody care? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that's just semantics, but in my opinion, it matters, right? Like if, if, if I um, look at true category creation, like Mark Organ, the founder of Eloqua, created the category of marketing automation. It literally didn't exist before he said it did. And how did he do that? He predicted that the market was going to, that the category was going to emerge. So what he saw that no one else saw was, hey, there's this different kind of marketer that does all their stuff on a spreadsheet and they're weird and I'm going to make software for them. And at the beginning, he called it demand gen marketing because that's what they were, demand gen marketers. Well, then demand gen marketers just became marketers and they was like, okay, this is marketing automation. And that's where it came from. But where it came from was he saw this bit of insight 
because um, he was like a consultant at Bain or something, right? He was studying this. So he saw this bit of insight. was like, this thing is going to emerge and it's going to be a thing. And I'm going to ride that thing all the way up and we're going to lead this market. And that's where it came from. A lot of true category creation comes from that. So yeah. anyways, long story short, the vast majority of startups that we know that go on to be successful are not creating new categories starters, like over 90% of companies that go on to go IPO are not creating new categories, first thing. Second thing, category creators' attempts at it often fail. And then third thing is a lot of what we're calling category creation right now, I don't even, I don't actually think it's category, <laughs> I don't actually think they're creating a category. I think they're just right. doing a really good job of expressing the value that their product delivers that's differentiated from everyone else. Hmm. Yeah. I, one of the things that I'd love to do if, if you'll uh, if you'll entertain the idea is sure. a lot of these examples, HubSpot, Drift, um, even Gong, right, Eloqua are in hindsight, we're looking retroactively in the past and sort of connecting the dots and we can see uh, the, the story play out, right? right. Um, if you will, I don't know if you've followed the story of Rome Research and, uh, and this new sort of uh, note-taking tool, which um, that's the kind of category I'm using to describe it right now. Okay. Uh, but the, the founder, Connor, will insist that it's not a note-taking tool. And there's sort of some trends and um, a couple different like words that are used to describe the value, like uh, personal knowledge management and uh, like a personal Wikipedia, or just being able to link ideas together in a sort of graphical mm -hmm. way rather than a folder hierarchical right. way. Um, right. Which goes way beyond note taking. So it's like note taking plus this plus that plus whatever. And I don't have a word for that. So I'm going to call right. it this. Yeah. Right. So my question is, yeah. would you advise, uh, you know, one, do you think that it, it's, it would qualify as creating a category if it is sort of breaking outside of the boundaries of note taking? Uh, and two, would you give it a new name or would you essentially just sort of lump in all, you know, basically go for more of a value thing. Like we are the note-taking tool, even though we don't use that word for X, for personal knowledge management, for example. Yeah. So, you know, so the first thing is, is we know that it's easier for customers. Like how does a customer understand something they've never encountered before? They will compare it to things they already know. Hmm. So if you come in and say, I have a flu flummer, they're going to say, the fuck's a flu flummer? I don't know what that is, right? Like, 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 and you're going to say, I'm glad you asked. And, and then you're going to go into your whole speech about, well, there's this and there's this, and I'm going to, and I'm going to tell you this big story and attempt to, to attempt to explain it. So if you are going to um, create this new thing, you're going to have to give me some kind of clue what it's like. You got to ground me somewhere, right? So which is why a lot of the times in the early days of a startup, it's easier to essentially position yourself technically as a subsegment in an existing category, even though you may have zero competitors in that subsegment, right? So you might say, you know, we're note-taking, but we're note-taking for people that want this, right? Or you might say, and maybe note-taking is not the right thing. Maybe it's you know, we're knowledge management. We, we kind of have an idea of what knowledge management is, but we're knowledge management for this or whatever. You're going to have to ground me somewhere, right? So mm -hmm. you're going to have to steal a concept from something. Now, sometimes you can do it, it. Like I've seen companies do really smart things by stealing concepts from things that are way outside their, their 
market and they've grounded people in that. Like um, I, th th there's a company here in Canada called Clearpath Robotics and they make these robots for manufacturing and what they do is they drive around and stuff. And, and so they shifted their positioning because robot was problematic because robot buyers of manufacturing had approved robot vendors and ideas about what they cost and what they do. And their thing was so new. So they repositioned it as self-driving car. So they basically said, we're like autonomous vehicles for manufacturing. Like like these are, this is a concept stolen from a completely other market from somewhere totally different. And so the question is, is that category creation? Because there was no autonomous vehicle for manufacturing before that. And it's like, no, because I know what autonomous vehicle is. So you're not, you're not telling me it's a flu flummer and then having to explain what a darn flu flummer is. And I have no idea and, and whatever. Um, so you're, so you're stealing that concept from somewhere else. So there's a lot of creative ways to essentially position something brand new, um, but root it in something so that, so that you can kind of quickly get to the, what is this thing? Hmm. And then why do I care? So, so I don't know. So if you had something that was, um, the only time you want to do category creation is when there's no other option right? There's no other good option. Like I cannot, none of the existing market categories are going to do the job of helping orient customers around what the heck is this. So I'm forced to create a new one. But even when I create a new one, I've got choices in the words that I use. And so what I'm trying to do is again, the, the mission of the market category is to orient me. I'm this value for these people. So a good market category it doesn't take the place of my messaging. It doesn't have to do everything, but it should point me in the right direction and more importantly, not point me in the wrong direction, right? So if you say I'm knowledge management for blah, blah, if it gets me pointed in the right direction, great. If note-taking sends you off and you know has everyone going, oh yeah, I know what you are. You're just like this. And you're like, no, we're not. Then don't be note-taking. <laughs> like, mm. Don't be that. <laughs> yeah. So what you really got to understand first is, What's my value? Who's my people I'm trying to communicate it to? And then say, okay, where do I ground these people? What do they understand that I can use as the starting point and then qualify it? So I'm a, I'm a buyer of robots for manufacturing. If I say autonomous vehicle, does that mean something to them? Yes. It means it drives around. It means it's got artificial intelligence. It means it's, you know, whatever. Is that different from a robot? Oh, hell yeah. That's good. That's what I want. <laughs> So I yeah. would use that. So in the work that I do with clients, like we often get into something that feels a little category creation ish, but we're trying to do something that isn't making up a term that, that is that we're, we're starting from nothing. Right. We, we're the best market categories kind of give me a feel for it. And we're like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get what that is. Hmm. So yeah, that's what you're good. looking to get to, right? It's like the whole purpose of the market category is to help me, is to give me a starting point for understanding what's your value, who's it for? And so yeah. if, if it can do that, then it's doing its job. If it's not doing that, then I argue it's not doing its job and you need a better one. Yeah. And speaking of who's it for, um, you had an interesting point that I really hadn't thought about very much and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it, which is sort of this discussion about personas versus segmentation and segments in a market. Um, what, what are the differences in how does that play into who this is for in the positioning equation? 
Yeah. So, so personas are, um, so I've noticed this recently, again, in the work I'm doing with clients, um, you know, as we're working through these positioning exercises, um, generally I have people send me their, their marketing materials as background for me so I can get up to speed on their current positioning. So I'm like, send me all your stuff and then I read it. And often what I get are these, these really fat persona documents where people have like, six, seven, eight different personas and they have them all mapped out and what they think and what they believe and what they care about and all this stuff. Um, and then we get to, you know, to, to, to do in the positioning and people get very concerned. Well, you know, I've got these eight different personas and isn't the positioning different for these eight different personas. And, and I got kind of opinions about this. So, so one is um, for most startups, um, segmentation is super important. And so what I mean by segmentation is if I'm selling to businesses, what kind of business am I selling to? So it's the difference between saying, you know, I sell to SMB, which is not a very good segment because I'm like, there's a million bazillion small, medium businesses around what kind of SMBs. And then you say, well, I actually sell to, you know, dry cleaners in North America. Oh, well, that's very different. I, you know, that that's a good segmentation. I know what dry cleaners in North America look like. Um, so I need to understand like who cares a lot about my value in terms of the kind of, what kind of company should I be targeting? That's what my segmentation is. And generally the segmentation has to be detailed enough so that my marketing and sales teams could act on it. It's basically the answer of like, okay, I'm going to go build campaigns. Who are the, who's it for? And SMB isn't specific enough, right? Whereas if I say, oh, well, I'm, I'm targeting um, companies between this size and this size with marketing teams that use Eloqua. Oh, well, that's pretty good segmentation. I could make a list, actually. I could get my salespeople outbound calling even to try and, and sell after that. So in positioning, this segmentation bit is really super important because... Um, it matters uh, who I'm selling to um, forms the basis of how I actually tell this point of view story, right? Because I need to understand those people and what their pain is and what their challenges are in order sort of to position myself around that. And so when I, you know, and again, it's, so this is where it gets tricky. Now, so I've got, company segmentation, right? So I'm selling the businesses. I need to know what kind of businesses am I selling to? Now, in a typical deal, you're, if you're selling to businesses, there is not just one decision maker. There's usually a bunch of decision makers and there's all kinds of research on this. And people love to quote this research, right? That the research says, oh, on average, you know, there's seven people in, a, in an enterprise software deal that have influence over the deal. Um, and it's one of these things that in theory, you're like, yes, that's true. But in practice, when you actually go and sell a lot of stuff over 25 years, what you recognize, uh, and it turns out the data backs this up too, it's just data that people ignore, <laughs> that generally there is a champion in the account. And so if you look at how a deal actually gets done in these businesses, somebody is tasked with figuring out which thing should we buy. And that it's that person's job to do the analysis, look at all the situation, figure out who goes on the short list, figure out who they want, 
And then they got to sell it to everybody else. So they got to go to IT and IT says, well, what about the security? What about whatever? And they go, oh, and then they go back to the vendor and say, what about your security? <laughs> and you say, well, here's my security suite. Give it to the IT guy. Right. And then they get the IT guy convinced or they, they got to go to their boss and their boss will say, what? That looks kind of expensive. How come it's so expensive? And then, and then your champions got to sell that. Right? Sometimes you get invited to a meeting with the boss, but not usually. Right. Mm. So purchasing might get involved and purchasing has a bunch of other things they're worried about. But are you in there pitching to purchasing? Generally not. So um, so this is one of these things that for the longest time I had gut feel on this. Like I was like, you know what? I can't serve all these different personas on my website. I got to pick one with my messaging. And so who am I going to pick? Well, I'm going to pick the most important one. Who's the most important one? It's my champion in the account. Yeah. Right. It, it, who am I pitching my first pitch to? Who's the most important pitch we're pitching? It's the champion in the account. The more the champion in the account understands the stuff, the better the job they do of championing you in the deal. Now, for the longest time, I had gut feel on this. Right. Because, you know, I'd always been selling B2B. You know, I'm working with sales teams. I'm sitting on sales calls. I'm like, you know what? If we're going to write messaging, we're going to write it for the champion in the account or whatever. And then 2011, I think it is, this book comes out, Challenger Sale. And then a year later, two years later, they come out with this book called Challenger Customer. Here's the whole thesis of the Challenger Customer. We'll break it down for you right now. Basically, <laughs> the whole thing in Challenger Customer is there's only one person that matters in the deal, and it's the, it's the champion in the account. Now, the Challenger guys were here. They would say, April, is a little more complicated than that. And you're right, and you should read it. There's 250 pages of it. But essentially... What they're saying is that you may need to arm the champion in the account to sell to these other folks. And yes, they might care about slightly different things or whatever, whatever, but you can pretty now the crazy thing about that book is that was based on a bunch of research and analysis they did with the biggest enterprises in tech, right? So mm -hmm. we're talking IBM selling a $50 million deal to Chase Bank, right? Right. <laughs> you... SaaS founder selling 15,000 bucks worth of software, I can guarantee you, you don't need to worry about anybody except the champion in the account. Hmm. So what I see is a lot of, um, a, a lot of stress and hand wringing in marketing departments that are like, we know there's such a thing as personas. We know there's multiple personas touch this deal. We should study them and we should create these persona documents. But then you look at what, actually happens with these documents what do they do with the personas hmm. and the answer is nothing that they end up using this this main one which is who's my champion in the account and all the stuff is oriented around that and that's good enough so hmm. my advice to companies and when we go through this positioning exercise everybody will get themselves all stressed out about well what about all the other personas and how do we handle them and i'll say you know what let's do this Let's just take your champion in the account. We need somebody to have in our brains on this, right? So let's take your typical person that that role that's the champion in the account. Let's do the whole positioning. And then let's get to the end of this and say, is the positioning fundamentally different for these other people? And generally the answer is no. Hmm. The other question is, do those other people fundamentally factor into the thing? What are you going to do with that persona knowledge that you've got? The answer hmm. is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So to recap, just because there, there's a lot of ideas in there, segmentation is essentially the idea that there are many different types of 
businesses or types right. of uh, organizations Companies. or even people groups that you would sell into. And right. then the persona is who actually you're talking to and who do you care to talk to? Who should you talk to within right. that business or group of people? That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. And so I um, think people spend way too much time on personas and not nearly enough time on segmentation. Now, of course, all this shit goes out the window if you're selling B2C, which I know right. nothing about. And you should not ask me any questions about consumer <laughs> marketing because I is not my jam. And so, but I think part of the reason why there's such confusion about it is because this, this I assume, is very, very, very different in consumer mm. marketing. Right. But I'm not marketing to consumers. I'm marketing to businesses. <laughs> yep. Caveat, right? Disclaimer. <laughs> So if you, if you, you know, if you, like, if, if, you know, if the April, if my, you know, evil twin consumer marketer, April was sitting here, she'd say, Oh my God, you're so full of shit. You know? And I would say, yes, I am. Like, I'll be the first one to say, I don't know. Like if it's consumer, don't listen to a word I say, but if it's business, business to business marketing, I say we spend way too much time on persona work and, not nearly enough time on the segmentation. And what we have are these sloppy, loose, poorly defined segmentation, and it's killing us in marketing and sales. And meanwhile, we have these beautifully perfected personas, 29 of them, and we're only using one. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and speaking of something else that people talk a lot about, but that might not actually be that useful, um, you have some interesting thoughts on product market fit. I would love to hear. In fact, you said, unpopular opinion, product market fit isn't a thing. I'm not even <laughs> sure it's a useful concept for startups. So I'd love for you to unpack that if you can. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I get what people want with, you know, I was having, I got a call from a reporter. I'm going to segue back to this in a second, but I got a call from a reporter this week and the reporter was talking about online influencers. And the reporter said, like, you know, why is it that there's these people and they don't necessarily have any expertise in a thing? And yet, you know, they're they're posting on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and stuff, and their posts get all these likes and things, and and you know, it makes them look like they really know what they're talking about. And we got into a discussion of the difference between something that is correct versus something that's popular because we wish it was correct. <laughs> mm. So product market fit, I think, falls into this category of things that we wish existed that fundamentally don't, right? So um, conceptually, you know, and I've read all the stuff, like at the beginning when I started talking about this, everyone's like, April, you just don't understand what product market fit is. And I'm like, really? Don't I? So, you know, I read all the thing around you know, Mark Andreessen thing and all the things. So I read all the things and I'm like, yeah, I get it. But so here's the idea. The idea is that in particular, if you go back to the original Mark Andreessen thing, right? The idea is that a company reaches this moment where they have this product market fit. And what it means is they're not thrashing around anymore trying to figure out, do we have the right product and are we selling to the right people and all this sort of stuff it's all just clicking and I know it when I've got it, right? I can't measure it. I don't know how to get there, but when I've got it, I know it. And when I have that, what I do next is I put my foot on the gas for marketing and sales and we're just pouring gas on the fire at that point. So if you ask people how to define product market fit, it's pretty wishy-washy 
Um, and, and, and what we do get is this consensus is you know it when you've got it. The second thing is that, and we all agree what we do after product market fit is we pour gas on the fire. We, you know, we could confidently put our foot on the gas and go. So I'm the vice president of marketing at a company, right? What's my job? My job is putting the foot on the gas to go. So you come to me and you say, I feel it, April, I got the feeling, the product market fit <laughs> feeling. And, and I know we've got it. So time, time to run, put the foot on the gas, write your great big fat check, go ham. Now, and, and what am I going to say? I'm going to say, I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't know how to put my foot on the gas until I have what I would call an actionable segmentation. So what's an actionable segmentation? So we just talked about segmentation. So, segment, so if you were to say, so, and I had this exact thing happen to me. I'm the temporary vice president of marketing at this company. I work for the CEO uh, and I'm like, and the CEO says, we have product market fit. They're uh, 15 million revenue at the time, actually 20 maybe. So, you know, Maybe, maybe they do a product market fit, right? Revenue's looking pretty good. So, and they just raised a bunch of money. And the guy says, we have product market fit. It's, it's time to just put our foot on the gas and let's go. And I'm like, I don't think we really know who we sell to. Like, who's our best fit customer here? I'm like, so who do we sell to? And you know what he says to me? Fortune 1000 companies. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to make a campaign for Fortune 1000 companies. They're all different. And we had this software that was for business analysts. It was for people managing internal software build programs, right? So I'm like, do all Fortune 1000 companies have business analysts that manage internal software build programs? And he's like, what if I'm a mining company and I don't do software at all? And he's right. like, yeah, yeah, no, we take those off the list. Those, are, those don't count. I'm like, okay, but what if I was Fortune 2000, but I had a lot of that. And so I had a lot of business analysts. Wouldn't we sell to them? And he says, yeah, yeah, we would. And I'm like, so the size of the company means nothing. So you're giving me a segmentation that's based on the size of the company, but, you, but you're also telling me size doesn't mean anything. So you tell me to go step on the gas. I cannot make a marketing program for Fortune 1000 companies. I have no idea what to do with that. Hmm. So even if you have the product market fit feeling, it's irrelevant if I don't know how to step on the gas. Do we have product market fit or not? I don't care. I don't care. It doesn't matter. What matters is, do I know how to put my foot on the gas? In that case, no. So how do we figure it out? Well, we got to get it actionable customer segmentation. So how do we do that? I don't know. I'm new in town. I don't know anything about this company or their customers or anything else. We run a net promoter score. I know everybody hates net promoter, but whatever. I'm just trying to figure out who's happy, who's not. We, take, we cherry pick a bunch of the happy ones and we do 30 customer interviews. And in these customer interviews, I say, hey, what were you using before you used this thing? And the first guy I talked to, he says, we were using Jira. And I'm like, Jira, that's a pretty good product. That's a really good product for doing project management stuff. Why the heck would you switch to us? And the guy says, well, we did acquisition. And then we had teams and they were all distributed and they were all around the place. And we needed this feature, that feature, this feature. And we couldn't do it with Jira. And we found you guys. And we just thought, like, hey, deep, that's cool. Interesting. Okay. Then I, then I call the next guy and I'm like, hey, what were you using before you used us? What did you use before? Said, Asana. I'm like, it's good software. <laughs> Why would you switch from that? <laughs> he says, uh, 
Well, we decided we were going to outsource some of the, the programming we do for these projects and we're going to outsource it to India and stuff. And so all of a sudden we got these teams and they're all in different time zones and they're all, you know, some of them are remote. So we got to, you know, we needed this, 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 same things. So we picked you. Ah, 30 calls, 28 or either we did an acquisition or we outsourced to India and China. The key common denominator is distributed teams. Hmm. So what's my actual segmentation? I got to be a certain size because this shit's not cheap, right? So <laughs> you got to be a certain size with a certain number of analysts. If you've got more than this many analysts, then we can sell you something. And you're either doing a lot of acquisitions or you're doing outsourcing, whatever, but you got distributed teams. Now, hmm. can I build a marketing program for that? I build marketing programs for that all day. That's super easy, right? You did ever. you know? Did you know? At the time, this was like a few years back. There was a magazine called Outsourcers Weekly, and you could buy a full page ad in Outsourcers Weekly for five thousand dollars. And I stuffed like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of pipeline running one stupid ad. Why? Targeting, right? Mm. So, product market fit. I don't know what it is. I don't know when I have it. I can lose it even after I have it. I, you know, I, I, it's supposed to be this magical moment when I can put my foot on the gas, but it, but it doesn't. I can have product market fit and not know how to put my foot on the gas. So why wouldn't I say instead, if I really wanted to focus on something operationally, operationally, what matters is do I have an actionable customer segmentation that I can build marketing and sales programs around to put my foot on the gas? And right. until I get to that moment, I don't have it. So if I don't have that, then I don't know how to put my foot. On. So what I think companies should be trying to do is figure out what's their actionable customer segmentation, how they run programs for that until they have that. then I think it's irrelevant product market fit, whether it's there or not or whatever. So I don't actually think it's a thing. And I don't think it's a helpful concept because I've never been in a situation yet where it's been helpful to me as the vice president of marketing. And I'm in charge of doing the thing that happens after product market fit. <laughs> so I'm like, so here, and here's the, here's the, the dirty truth of this, right? Is it was invented by venture capitalists for venture capitalists. No one cares except venture capitalists. What it represents is the perfect moment to write you a check. Hmm. And I want that to exist so bad if I'm a venture capitalist that I will fight anybody online that refuses to believe it's a thing. And so now if I'm a founder and I want to raise money, I got to make that a thing. I got to show up to the meeting and say, I got product market fit. Here's how I know. Right. And so that's the only, but it's like, you know, it's like, it's like I want a pony but that doesn't mean I get a pony, right? Like, so, so I think it's just one of these, and then I think there's a few things in the startup world that are like this, like the, the VCs are so adamant about it, but the VCs have no operational experience and they don't necessarily know what they're talking about. They want it to be a thing, but it's not measurable. Nobody knows it. It's whatever. And conceptually, it's kind of interesting and they can write 19 million think pieces on it. But operationally, it's not important for startups, but startups got to pretend it is or, you know, or buy into it because they're not going to raise money otherwise. And so you got to play by these guys' rules if you want their money. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, so I think product market fit is kind of stupid. 
I, I agree. I'll have to say, <laughs> and I appreciate your thoughts there. We're, we're getting close to wrapping up, but I'd love to hear uh, a little bit more about what's in your swipe file, quote unquote, as it were. You mentioned uh, level jump, but I believe there's two others. Could you walk me through just really quickly sort of uh, why those are notable or sort of um, startups or positioning case studies to model after? Yeah. So I think, you know, what I, I'm really interested in, um, in like companies that are like at, you know, post-seed series A, maybe creeping up to series B stage if you're raising money. Um, you know, and I'm interested in companies that do a really good job of positioning in there because I think it's really hard. They tend to be in really crowded markets. Um, and, and, and in particular companies that aren't like drift or gong with, you know, they've raised $300 million and the, you know, they did the rules don't, the same rules don't apply to them as due to somebody who's raised maybe 10 million or 20 million. Right. Um, so I think, you know, level jumps a need one, you know, and they raise practically nothing. Uh, and in my opinion, doing a really good job on the positioning and, and, you know, it looks good. It's super differentiated in a market that's challenging, right. With, with hmm. the competitors all over the place. So I think they're a neat example. Um, I sit on the board of a company called Sampler and they, um, what they do is digital product sampling. And, um, and so what I mean by that is like, if you ever see these people standing on the street corner, handing out samples of granola bars or cereal or something or juice or things like this, and companies spend billions a year on consumer packaged goods, brands spend billions a year on what they call sampling programs. And, um, anytime mm. you launch something new, you'll, you'll run these things. And the problem with it is really hard to measure whether the sampling ever led to any purchases. You don't know who you're sampling to. It's just, it's literally random people walking on the street. So it's not targeted at all. Um, and so what sampler does is they have this massive, massive, massive database of people that want to get samples and they know a bit about these people. Um, and so if you're a consumer packaged good brand, you can, you can essentially um, match with people that fit the demographic that you think are going to like your stuff. And then you can send them samples to their home and then you can give them a coupon code or a bunch of other things. You can survey them afterwards and you can track, did they buy something? You can survey them and find out what you think. Did you like it? You know, did you do it? Whatever. So it's kind of a digital way of doing product sampling. So they've been positioned like that for a while, small company, but growing pretty fast. Um, and then uh, COVID hits. And <laughs> they're a great example of, a uh, really rapid response to COVID. And then, man, is their business ever doing well now? So uh, so COVID hits and the instant reaction in the consumer packaged goods brands were sampling's dead. Sampling's hmm. dead. We're not doing this anymore. Like we can't, we can't sample, right? I can't stand in the aisle at the grocery store and hand you things out. I can't stand on the street corner. I can't do whatever. And their sampler calling into all the accounts and they have deals in the works and everything else. And everybody just pulled the plug. We don't even think we're going to do sampling anymore. Sampling sucks. Mm. <laughs> and you're like, Oh no. <laughs> and what sampler did, um, you know, which is kind of obvious in hindsight, but I'll tell you, it didn't feel like it in the moment. I'm sure. Um, was they're like, it, you know, it's not that sampling's dead. It's the way we did sampling previously is dead. So they essentially developed this point of view around contactless product sampling, right? So how do I do how do I do product sampling but remove the contact from it? Which is another way of saying digital product sampling, but it's right. running at this idea of you know what your problem is. Your problem is this. Like your problem is not sampling, 
And, and by the way, we can fix all these other problems for you too. Like you didn't know who sampled and we can't track the stuff and whatever. So they wrote a bunch of really interesting stuff around contactless product sampling. They really leaned into PR on this because everybody in the world was trying to write a think piece about why is how is COVID changing the way we shop? And, and here's right. Sampler. They're everywhere. They're like, you know what? It's really going to change product sampling. You are never using the lipstick sample in the Sephora ever again. <laughs> never putting random stuff on your face from a never <laughs> right right so they do this thing and uh this stuff gets tons of pickup so all of a sudden you couldn't pick up a newspaper or magazine or whatever to hear about these sampler guys talking about how sampling man it's it, it just ushered in a whole new world of sampling um <coughs> and the result for them was there were a couple of weeks all their customers are like we're not doing anything everything's quiet to like a tsunami of interest right where all these mm -hmm. all these big big consumer packaged good brands are in there saying we need a bit of this so i think they're a neat example of how do you how do you take that positioning shift it because the priorities of your customers have shifted reframe it in a way where they understand why is this important right now and then just run right at that and, you know, use it to scramble up a bunch of business. They closed a round of financing like four weeks after COVID hit. Like, it's amazing. Wow. You look at these guys and it's like, it's pretty cool what they were managed, what they managed to do in a short period of time. But again, being conscious of that, understanding it and then being able to react. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's another a great example. example. Yeah. I love it. I'll, I'll wrap up here with my last question, which is uh, what I call my guy Raz question. Um, so for all the things that you've shared, uh, the audience that you've grown, the work that you've done with positioning and with the book, how much would you attribute to luck and how much would you attribute to hard work and sort of brute force? Um, you know, if I think about where I'm at right now, like, you know, being able to do this consulting business and work with companies and focus just on positioning, like, I think the I think the idea the idea of me even being in marketing is just stupid luck. Like, I mean, <laughs> like but why am I even a marketer? That's just luck. It's just weird circumstance. Um, me even being interested in positioning in the first place was kind of random luck. I think you know me trying to figure out how to do my job better was me. That was me. Um, you know, me making a decision that you know what, maybe I'm done working inside companies. Maybe I want to go be a consultant. And, you know, if I'm going to be a consultant, maybe I consult on this thing that I think I'm pretty good at. Nobody else knows how to do. So there's that. Like, I don't think the book came out of luck. The book was a slog, right? That mm. was just plain yeah. hard work. But, you know, did I have some great master plan that resulted in me being the positioning lady in my old age? No, that <laughs> was kind of a weird winding road. Um, uh, but I, I do think, th I do think that there's value in understanding, um, you know, the intersection of things that you like to do, things that you're good at and things that make you money. You know, people talk about that, but right. there's a name for that thing. Um, I think I am sitting square in the middle of that right now. I didn't plan it to be this thing in this way, but um, it's pretty great to be here now that i am here this phase well, of my do. career feels a bit like the reward for all the crap yeah. i had to put up with for the previous 25 years <laughs> i think 
regardless of the, the, the number of luck and hard work, I think it's well-deserved and appreciate you sharing today, all the amazing uh, nuggets of wisdom, uh, contrarian views and everything in between. So thanks. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks again to April for spending her time with me. It was my goal to cover a lot of new ideas and challenge her thinking, and she really delivered on that. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank April for coming on the show and sharing everything in this episode, and also let her know what you thought. My big takeaways were, it's very clear that April has done a lot of thinking on this. In general, I was impressed by how specifically and clearly she could articulate her thoughts and back it up with frameworks and evidence and her own experiences. I think we can all learn a thing or two from her about how much work she's put into working out these ideas for herself. Another thing that stood out to me was how much context plays a role. It's not so much about who you are as much as it is about who you are in relation to others. And this is quite literally what positioning is, but it's easy to focus on yourself and not really think about who and what uh, you're getting lumped into, right? Which group you're in. And I also really loved her ideas on the point of view pitch. It's one of those things, uh, you know, it's one thing to work it out on paper, but it's another to actually go implement that into your ads and your landing pages and sales decks. And so I think the point of view pitch is actually a really interesting, unique concept uh, that makes positioning a lot more actionable. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.